Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians 16. If you don't, there's a pew Bible right in front of you there, and the page number is 1792. Which actually reminds me about a rhyme about Columbus, but it's the wrong year. Um, so if this is your first time, we this is our last sermon in the book of First Corinthians. I've been preaching through this book for like, for a while. It's been a while. Even though I felt like we've gone really fast. Um, anyway, so the book of First Corinthians is a letter written to a church in the city of Corinth in southern Greece by the Apostle Paul trying to help them figure out what it looks like to live for Jesus in their context. And there's a lot of lessons for us since people are basically the same, even though their contexts change. And Jesus remains the same. So I'm going to read all of chapter 16, and then we'll go from there. Okay? Now, about the collection for God's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while and even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits— But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers— He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunus, and Achaeus— Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The church in the province of Asia sends you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to focus this morning on just a specific phrase in this passage in verse 20. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to preach on that at all. Um... This whole passage is really about generosity and hospitality. So if you're new, I probably should just say this before you get your feathers ruffled. I've been here two and a half years. This is my first sermon on generosity or money at all. So just, you know, if you're new, you just won the lottery. What can I say? Um, (laughs) So let's try to start with something we can mostly agree on. Um, I think most people have a similar reaction of not being, not liking being asked for money. Now, some people like to be, to be invited to, to something they find exciting, and if giving money is part of that, they're, they're cool with it. But just generally being asked for money is not something most people like, right? Um, and the thing that's always the most memorable to me is actually being asked for money by panhandlers. Not because it happens all that much, but because it, for me it's emotional. It really bothers me, and so I, I just remember it. And um, so the question is, am I just stingy, or is this a normal psychological reaction? And it's not like just seeing somebody, like, with a cup and they want— but, like, people who, like, actually—like, I used to— I, live in, I lived in New York, and we lived in Chicago for a while. And so, you know, there's some really 
entrepreneurial, aggressive sort of panhandler sometimes. And so they'll argue with you about whether or not you should give them money. And so I really, really bothers me. And, and one of the things as I was thinking about this is I think that there are reasons why we feel this way that we mostly all share in relationship to being asked to give, right? And here are the, here are the five that I— um, that occurred. One is that I haven't planned for it. Like, I am literally that guy that does not carry even a dollar in my wallet. And so when somebody comes up to me, especially if they're like, can I just have a dollar? Like, I literally don't have one in it. It's frustrating to me because I, if I plan for something, I'm willing to do it. And, and I think that that's true of general giving as well. When we have, when we have like saved up for something, we have it premeditated, and then somebody asks us to give, we're really happy to do it. Most of us are pretty happy to give Christmas presents. We knew it was coming, saved some money for it, we bought exactly what we wanted, and now we're giving it. And there's no emotional controversy about that, right? Or the second one is, I really dislike feeling pressured into things. I have a real negative reaction to that. So when I feel pressure to give rather than persuaded to give, it really bothers me. Third is, um, I don't trust the administration of the gift. You know, if somebody— seems to evidence the fact that they may not have been the best organizer and administrator of their assets before the moment they're asking me for money, my motivation is sapped a little bit. And that's true of, that's true of not just Panhandle, it's true of anybody. Like, if, I, if I'm asked to give, but I don't really have any reason to trust that they're going to be good managers of what I give, I don't have a lot of motivation, and it bothers me, right? Um, fourth, and this is the one that I think causes most people not to give to Panhandle, is we're not sure, we think we might be doing damage rather than helping. We don't believe our gift's going to make any difference. And then fifth, it also breaks the rules of imposition, that it's impolite to impose on somebody. Now, some of you might be thinking, Nick, isn't that sort of like the opposite thing that pastors are supposed to say? I mean, aren't pastors supposed to, like, encourage generosity and hospitality, and we should invite people to impose on us? Well, yes and no, but what I'm talking about is universal human reactions. That is, all of us on some level believe in some law of imposition. Like, we— Madison is not a place where any of us can walk into any house in any neighborhood at any time and help ourselves to anything, isn't it? It's a good way to get shot, even in Madison, right? Because everybody ever has limits in order to imposition, right? And most of us internally, we would like to invite the imposition into our lives. You might be generous, but you usually like to invite the cases of generosity in your life, and you might be hospitable. But generally speaking, you don't like people to show up completely unannounced who you've never met. Most of us have some level of law of imposition. And when you put these five things together and somebody just asks you for money out of the blue like that you don't trust and you don't know and you haven't saved up for and you're not prepared for and you feel pressured and not persuaded, usually the result is annoyance or frustration or anger or cynicism and not, you know what? Man, let me get my checkbook. Let, follow me to the ATM and I will tear the front off that thing and pull out— the, right? That's just not how we feel. And as, as people believe in Jesus and you kind of come along with that— one of the things that you'll also recognize is that there's actually, a, a, in opportunities for generosity, there's actually very significant spiritual danger. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but sin, is all, sin has virtually nothing that it can do on its own. It always has to twist something good. And so in every opportunity to give, whether we're the giver or the receiver, there's spiritual danger that immediately comes in, right? So for example, if, if somebody comes up to me and asks me to give to something, they have foisted a spiritual danger on me that I don't particularly want. Because, you see, if they ask me for money and I say no, then the possibility—even if it's the right thing to say, the possibility of that be being an opportunity to create hardness of heart for me is right there. But if I say yes, then the opportunity for self-righteousness is right there. And with that self-righteousness can come either the sort of conservative fallacy of belittling those who need to receive. Well, why don't they work hard? And they didn't work as hard as me, and I'm more accomplished than them. Or the liberal one of, now that I've given, they should listen to me and let me run their lives and let me tell them what to do, right? And either one of those can happen from that self-righteousness that comes in immediately if I say yes. So whether I say yes or no, in an opportunity for generosity, there's immediately spiritual danger. So you might just say, well, better not to have any. Same thing for receiving. If you're the asker or you're the receiver, there's immediately spiritual danger whenever you receive anything free, Right? It can have the effect of further humiliation, or it can hurt, have the effect of further entitlement, right? You could be more humiliated by the gift and feel like you don't deserve it, and it's just more that people have to give to you, and you can't accomplish anything, and blah, 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 which leads you away from redemption because, God, because you can't believe God wants to give, and He does care, and He wants to offer grace, and he, he wants to fulfill and supply your needs, and He wants to get in there and bring you forward, right? And much of that includes His generosity to you, and you've got to believe that that generosity comes from a good place. But if entitlement comes in, entitlement pushes out repentance, 
There's a sense of, well, I deserve this and I should have this. It's, it's, it's the receiver's form of self-righteousness. And so, what are you going to, I mean, what do you do with the whole generosity thing? And here's, here's the question you know, we always have to ask with these sorts of spiritual things, is what's the question, what's the problem to be solved, and what's the tension to be managed? What is the fundamental yes or no question? The fundamental yes or no question is, in the gospel, Jesus calls us to become generous people. Will you or won't you? In the gospel, Jesus invites you and I to become hospitable people. Will you or won't you? You see, that's not a tension to be managed. That's a yes or no question. Sure, there's incrementals in it. How hospitable, how generous, whatever. But the basic question, what sort of person are you going to become in response to the sort of God Jesus is going to be? Sorry if that was the wrong predicate. I forgot the suffix, the first part where I got to the end. The subject by, anyway. But then here's the tension to be managed. Now, what are you going to do with the particular situations where you're asked to give and the spiritual dangers that attend on them? You can't get rid of that. You're going to get asked for money. You're going to be the recipient of donation. There's going to be an interchange of love in the life in which you live, whether in community or personally. That's going to happen. So the tension to be managed is, what do you do with particular opportunities? How much do you give or not give? What do you do with it? And what do you do with the spiritual danger that attends on it of self-righteousness or despair? Does that make sense? Awesome. So you have to—now, now Paul doesn't argue for any of what I'm going to say in the next two or three minutes here in this passage. This passage is all about practicalities. All the theology is assumed, right? There's been 15 chapters of theology. Now he just assumes some things. But in other places in the, in the scriptures, it's, it's argued that the gospel is supposed to make us more generous. That doesn't mean it's going to make you more generous than your neighbor. It's going to make you more generous than you without Jesus. Okay? You might still not be as generous with your, as your neighbor, who isn't a Christian. But the idea is that if your neighbor who wasn't a Christian, who's more generous with you, followed Jesus, they'd be more generous than they are right now. Because it's not comparative with another person, it's comparative to you without versus you with. That, of course, is from C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. Um, and the point of the gospel is not to get you to act generous. The point of the gospel is to recreate and motivate a more generous and hospitable heart. In um, 1 Corinthians 9-7, where Paul actually does make an argument for generosity, he says, Each man or person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly and under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, lots of people have heard this at offering time, right? Um, and that can be a little—that can make you feel bad or something because you're kind of like, okay, so not only should I, you want me to give more, but you want me to be, ha- to be happy about it so that you don't have to feel bad for asking me and blah, blah, blah. Let's all be codependent, right? But um, here's, here's where this has been going from chapter 8, and that is that there is a giver who gives cheerfully and never under compulsion and never reluctantly. There was this movement amongst some pastors in England a few years back who they got to the point where they really didn't like the doctrine of the atonement. That is, that Jesus died in our place, that he took the legal penalty of our real sin, that that was put on him and his righteousness was put on us, what's called substitutionary atonement and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That is, Jesus died as our substitute and his righteousness was imputed to us, so we stand before God as righteous as Christ. They didn't like that idea because the Son of God is sent to die by the Father, and they're like, that's child abuse. Like that, no wonder British people hate this because the mental image is horrible. And that's partly because it's the totally wrong mental image because people imagine the son of God as a little boy rather than as a grown man who's the son, who's a grown man. And you, when you send somebody to do something and they go to do it, no matter how sacrificial it is, not under compulsion and not reluctantly, but fully cheerfully— it can never be abuse. You see? It's not possible. And Jesus is the one that he says just a few verses before this, think about Jesus who was rich, but for her, who for your sakes became poor so that in his poverty you might become rich. Right? It doesn't say God made him come. 
It says that Jesus was self-motivated. The Father sent a self-motivated Jesus because the Father and the Son have, have identical passions. And Jesus comes as the Son, and he becomes the first giver, the full giver, the complete giver, the one who doesn't give, not just not under compulsion, but not even reluctantly. I mean, how often do we give anything with some tinge of reluctance? It's one thing to say not under compulsion. It's another thing to say there's no reluctance at all. It's fully cheerful. And when that person becomes your savior and your king and your model and your master and he's the one we look to, then the, the idea of generosity and the idea of hospitality begins to make perfect sense. And it doesn't just guilt us into acting like we're generous, into acting like we're hospitable. It actually has the potential to change us into motivationally hospitable and motivationally generous people. Does that make sense? So for a few minutes, let's look at the practicalities of generosity and hospitality in this passage. So we'll look at generosity first and then hospitality, okay? So what is real faith in Jesus? Um, How does real faith in Jesus change generosity? And there's a few things in this passage that come out. The first is, is that throughout this passage, generosity is just expected if people believe in Jesus. It's expected in relationship to charity and in terms of mission, spreading the, spreading the good news about Jesus. In the first couple of verses when it says, the collection for God's people, then he says it's going for, to Jerusalem. That's not because there's already a pope in Jerusalem and they're going to build this nice basilica and and it's going to have plexiglass pulpits and all that kind of stuff. The reason why he's saying that is because in AD 46, there was, a, there was a climate event that lasted a few years in the Levant, this area where Israel is, and people were literally star- starving there in drought. And because the Christians were not accepted as real Jews, the collections taken among the Jews were, were dispersed to Christians. And so they were kind of out of luck. And, and, but yet, in Greece, they were right on the ocean. The same climate event wasn't happening there. And they were in plenty, both in Macedonia and northern Greece and in southern Greece, which is called Achaia. And so Paul says, listen— These people are starving. They're your brothers in Christ. We should help them. So let's put some money aside and let's do it. Now, he doesn't say, if you want to, or maybe you would think about giving. He just assumes it. He presumes that they're going to give. He just tells them how to administrate it. Here's when you should put the money aside and so on. Does that make sense? The idea idea is if Jesus has done something in you, the question isn't, are you going to be generous? The question is, how do you do it? How much? How deep is the sacrifice? The question doesn't remain, is generosity good and should I do it, right? It's it's expected. It's presumed. The second thing is that it's planned or, like I said the last couple weeks, budgeted. Planned is kind of an ambiguous word. But he basically, he doesn't say, he doesn't just show up one day and say, hey, you got some drachmas in your pocket, let's all put them in a bag and let's help the people in Jerusalem. That's not what he says. For two reasons. One is, you, you don't get anything in offering that way, right? You just get a few dollars. But the other thing is, that that's when you feel compulsion, right? You didn't plan on this. You see what he's doing? He's saying this should be premeditated. You should, ever, you should ask yourself, what of what God has given me do I need to set aside to be generous? That is, in our terms, what do you budget? And if you recognize, there's two things that happen when you budget generosity. The first thing is, you, the context of the decision is totally different. If you, if you come to church, for example, okay, and it's an offering, and you're like, yeah, I should give something an offering. You know, Mama used to say that. So, like that country song says. And so you pull out your wallet, and you open it up. The biggest bill in there is a what? A 10 or a 20, right? It's the biggest one! And you like, get the ones in there, and the fives, and maybe some change, right? And you, you're like, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna give this 20, right? And so you come to, you, but you only come to church once a month, and so after, all, like, a whole year, that's like 120 bucks, right? And so, um, so, but it feels generous, right? But it's not for you, probably. Why? Because you didn't look proportionately to, to all that God has given you, what you have, where you are, what your position is. You didn't sit down with your budget in January and look at who you really are financially and decide what generosity is for you. You just looked in your purse or wallet, right? You see, the minute you start being a premeditated giver, you, you may give the same amount, but you'll un- your understanding of that relationship to who you really are totally changes. Right? The second thing is, is it makes giving a lot more fun. And here's why. Because when you've already had the money and you already have it put aside and you've already decided you're going to give it, now it's just a question of who do you get to give it to? 
right? You've already made the decision. So, for example, Alexi and I, <clears throat> we, we make our decisions in January, right? So we decide how much we're giving to the church. We have the missionaries we're going to support that year. And then we also have money that we save because we know we're going to get hit up for money, right? You know, Campus Crusade students are going to be like, I'm going to go to Uruguay, and they're going to send us letters, and the youth group people are going to go play. People are going to do stuff, right? The Williams are going to go to Guatemala. People are going to do things, and, and they're going to have to raise money. And so if, I, if I've already got $600 in a line item in Excel— and I feel obligated to give to somebody, right? And I get a letter for some, some crusade kid that's like serving in the church and doing stuff and loves Jesus and they want to do this thing. And I know it's going to help develop their faith. Now it's, I'm like, yeah. And I, so I want to get out my checkbook and I want to write them a check and I want to give them as much as I can because I have the money. I already thought about it. This is what it's for. This is what I'm doing. And there it is. It's totally different emotional response than I haven't saved everything. I don't have any money. It's all in some other thing or, I, or I'm in debt. I'm on my credit card. That's what I really need to pay. And then somebody says, hey, I'm going to go to Uruguay and I love Jesus. And you're like, great. You should go talk to some donors. Right? Because, you see what I'm saying? And also, you know, if, if you don't think, hey, you know what? I'm going to want to be generous with some people who aren't going to have the foresight to ask me in December if they can be my budget for next year. Right? Who's going to do that? 15-year-olds who go on mission trips don't do that, right? But when we premeditate and we plan, we budget our giving, it totally changes our emotional relationship to what is proportional for us and our fun in actually giving. Like, there's been a couple times where Lexi and I, we just didn't get hit up enough. Not that doesn't mean you need to do more, but, but there was one time last year where— in our fund to, like, just give to people who need something, because either they just need help to get through the day, or they're going to do ministry. Like, we had a certain amount of money in it. We had to disperse it. We had to find people to give to. So we just wrote checks to missionaries we support for more than they expected and stuff like that. And it was, it was just fun to do that, okay? The third thing is that it's protected. Jesus has to make us generous, but leaders can destroy generosity by not being transparent and building trust. When you look at this passage, there's, there's three or four verses where Paul does everything in his power to protect the trustworthiness of the gift. And you need to you take notice of that. You're raising support. Your elders over church, right? We're staff people. You run a nonprofit. You run a business. You do any, anything you do. This is incredibly important. If you notice what happens in the passage, he says, listen, you put the money aside and you collect it. Then when I come, I'm going to write out letters of introduction to the people in Jerusalem that I know. And I'm going to give it to the people that you've selected that you think are trustworthy. And we'll send your people with your money, with my letters, to Jerusalem so that they can go. They can oversee how the money is spent. Make sure all the right things are done with it. You see? And then he says, listen, if you want me to go, I'll go. To make sure it all works okay. And then the people you decided were trustworthy will go with me. So that they can oversee your gift the whole way and I'll facilitate it. Now think about this. How far is it from Corinth to Jerusalem? This is participatory. It's 800 miles as the crow flies. In the first century, taking ships through the sea that is the worst known in the history of the world for sinking ships. Right? So interested is the apostle in making sure that the trustworthiness, that he protects the dignity of the generosity of God's people, that he offers to travel the better part of a thousand miles through treacherous seas to take the money where it needs to go if that's what they want because it makes them feel better. So, for example, if you've ever come up to me and, like, you didn't get your tithe check or whatever, your giving check, and the thing that came around, you're like, hey, Nick, can you put this in the safe for me? What's, if you've seen me, what's my response? Whoa, whoa, tiger, I don't, I don't touch money. I don't, I don't do that. Why don't I ever touch money? For this reason, to maintain the trustworthiness, right? Why do our checks need to be signed by two people? Why do we have a, a sub-audit every year and a full audit every three years? Why, why do we have a board of elders overseeing things rather than a couple of people that oversee things behind closed doors? Why do we always have more than one people from every dollar you give from the sanctuary all the way to the bank? Why do we, why do we, why do we, why do we? Why do you vote on every budget? Why does the Constitution say we can't deviate more than 2% from budget expenditures without coming back to the congregation for a reaffirmation? And on and on and on. Why do we do all that stuff? Because I know that God can grow a generosity in your heart, but I can shut it off. And that leaders, whether you lead anything, we have to be extremely careful about the trustworthiness and, the, and we need to protect the dignity of the generosity of God's people. Does that make sense? All right. 
when, when we start looking at that stuff, um, you've got to start to ask the question, okay, so how do we build, how do I, how do I seek to have God build generosity in me? Because it doesn't just happen one day. It does, you don't just go, oh yeah, right, generosity, yeah. And you just go home and you pick what's generous for you and you give that dollar amount for the rest of your life because that's what generosity is. That's not how it really works. Generosity is a spiritual, it's a spiritual aptitude. It's a spiritual piece of character. It's something, it's something about who you are. And so it's something that's seen and built into and believed and, and, it, and it changes over time dramatically. And so it goes through a series of steps. So like, for example, the first step is to be persuaded, right? What's your first job in relationship to generosity? It's to be persuaded. Will you be persuaded that gener- generosity is completely in line with the generosity of Christ? It really should be expected in the gospel and that it's something that has to be true about you. Step one, right? Step two is to get positioned, right? Because if you say, okay, yeah, generosity, right. Well, wait, but I, I maxed out on all my credit cards and I own a car I can't afford and I'm way underwater with this. And Right? I mean, most Americans, what's the, the joke about Americans? We spend 103% of our income right? It's why Social Security needs to exist, right? Because we can't be trusted to save for ourselves, right? Um, It takes people three, five, six years just to get financially positioned so that they can be generous, to pay off credit cards and to pay down cars and to put caps on their lifestyle in certain places and to figure out what it's going to look like for them to have anything to be generous with. One of the interesting things about American culture is if you split America into three classes, the, the poor, the middle class, and the rich, which class proportionately is the least generous? I can't show you with my fingers. It's the middle class. It's the middle class. The poor are fairly generous, proportionately, and the rich. Because it, you, you get to a certain amount of riches, and it's, and it's hard not to feel some civic responsibility. It's hard. You know, you do well. You, you can say you're a self-made man, but a lot of people, they, you know, they, they recognize that there's some civic— and they just—they tend to give more. And the poor, they, they, they've given up on building an empire for themselves. The poor survive by relating to each other. So, like, if you work with people who are—like, if you work with people who are, who are poor, oftentimes—like, I, I remember in Panama City, this guy would get his paycheck, right? And we're like, okay, so you put this much in the bank, and you save this much. And then we'd see him, like, three days later, and it was all gone. He didn't have any money at all to pay anything. We're like, dude, what did you do with— you had, you had $300. What did you do with it? He said, well, I gave some to Bill, and I gave some to Alice over there, and she gave— and you're like, dude, what are you talking— what are you, you can't even pay your rent. He's like, but you see, among, among very poor people, whoever has the windfall shares with the person who didn't. And the windfalls pass around. That's how they survive. And so they tend to be very generous in relation to proportion of income. It's the middle class— that struggle because we're so close to that kingdom we want. And we just can't afford to be turning loose because we're, we're so close to that Audi or we're so close to the new car rather than the four-year-old car. And we're so close to getting the kid in that nicer soccer club or this better thing or to eat out another time a week or to have this much in our retirement by this age so that if you do the calculator for this, it'll be this much and we can go to that place and I can play golf one more time and I can— You see what I'm saying? Because we're so close, it's so hard to put a cap on it and let it go. So hard. And so we have to get positioned. The the third is we got to trust God because you can never trust any institution or any person to give to them until you trust God with it first. Right? Why do you give— Like those of you that give to High Point, why do you give to High Point? Do you give to High Point because I'm this thrilling speaker? Right? And have enormous pimples on my nose? No, that's not why you do it. It's because, it's because you believe in Jesus, right? You believe in Jesus. You believe Jesus wants us to live out our real Christian lives among real people. That means we have to form real communities of Jesus, which means there has to be a real church. That church is supposed to do things. Those things cost money. There are expenses involved, and therefore you give to God partly by giving to your church, right? But you, it starts with Jesus, and it ends with giving to High Point Church, Right? And that's true with anything we give to. But also, you, at some point, you, gotta, you trust God, but you got to trust something. There's lots of people like, I trust God. I just don't trust that church. I'm not giving my money to blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, fine. But that's a little like in First John when you say you love Jesus, but you don't like any Christians, you know? Uh, uh, fine, but wrong, right? 
part of our sincerity is tested by whether or not we can worship the perfect God by living, living our lives in his imperfect means. The way you show you value the perfect God is by, partly, in this context, giving to a very imperfect organization. Right? And as much as leaders are supposed to work to make it the most trustworthy, the most effective, the most helpful organization possible, it, you can never sustain big generosity on the basis of organizational perfection, right? But at some point, you've got to trust somebody, right? And then you've got to grow. And here's what I mean by that. You're not going to go from zero to a hundred like that. And so most people have to set goals and to set benchmarks and so on. So for example, um, there's some pastors who will talk about this as percentage giving. Because you see, Paul could have said here, he could have quoted a percent or something and told us how much to give. And he could have done that in 2 Corinthians 2, right? He could have said, I want you to give this much. But he doesn't. And he has an Old Testament precedent, right? He could say, look, the Old Testament precedent is 10%. I want you to give 10%. But he doesn't. In both cases, he says, give what you want to. Look at how much you have. Look at what needs to be done. Look at who God is and give what you want to. And so if you sit down at, and you budget and you plan and you look at what you give and what you give is 0.3 of 1% of all that you make— and you come to the conclusion that that's not the generous lifestyle God wants for you, you don't have to say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to—I think it's, it should be—I'm an American, and we're the richest country in the world. I should give 20 percent, and so— that's, No. Let's get to 1 percent, right? You go, let's, let's get to—what's 1 percent? Let's see, we could do 1 percent. Maybe we could do 1 percent. Let's do 1 percent, right? And then you just grow. You just grow. You get to 1 percent, you, 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 you ask, you, you go, is this the generous life? Is this what God wants? And if the answer is no, you know, I can think I can—I want to do more. I think I can do more. Then you get to two, right? It's just—you kind of—and they don't have to feel bad. You're working towards something. Your heart's in the game. And here's the thing. Growth is more about growing than percentage, right? It's more about growing, doing more, and pushing yourself than about the percentage you give. For example, like, I, I was a Christian. I was like 16, 17 years old. So since my paychecks were like $20, I was tithing. I was just told, you give 10%. So I was tithing, right? Which is only $20 when you have a $200, right? Now it's real money. But, but that's never changed for me. So it's not hard. I never had that 10%. So to not spend it isn't, isn't really all that difficult, Right? And so you see, so what I find is I can give 10% of my income, my family income, to wherever, and even give a little bit more, but because that's where I'm already at, I feel my generosity muscles atrophying because I'm not pushing it. I'm not lifting. I'm not going to the gym. Nothing's happening. It's the, it's the development. It's the growth. It's the push. It's the sacrifice that creates the spiritual transformation. So for you, you might get more spiritually out of trying to get to 1% or something. To give to wherever you want. You don't have to give it here. Wherever, wherever. That's a totally different passage. But, but to just move forward generosity does more than if you're at a place that's pretty good, but you're just staying there. So even though Lexi and I, we've always given more than 10%, we have to figure out how do we, how do we make it hurt this year? We've always got to ask that question. What's that thing we want? Let's not buy it. Let's give it over here. Right? Like this, this year I gave away my car. Okay, it was a crappy Saturn from 1999, but it was my Saturn. I bought it new when I was just out of college. I loved that car. But my Indian buddy in a PhD program needed it. He just needed a car. And so I gave it to him. That's all. And that, that was hard for me. <laughs> but that was, but part of the reason I did it wasn't just because my buddy Manohar needed it. It was I knew I needed it. And if I don't ask myself, how can I be generous? I'm going to be asking myself, how can I be rich? In the wrong way, right? And so that already covered number six. So let me just end with this on this section. And that is, here's the anti-cynicism question. If you feel like, you're like, oh, oh I hate churches. Um, he, here's the question to ask ourselves in terms of generosity. Does God in this church primarily want something for me or from me? You just have to ask yourself that question. Is this whole generosity thing, is this whole hospitality thing, are these things, does this, does this place and does this God really just want something from me or does it, does he or does this church want something for me? Because it, sh it should feel like our real heart behind this is that we want something for you. 
We want you to be part of what we're accomplishing together. We want you to experience what it means to grow in generosity. We want you to be able to live out what it means to follow Jesus in these things. And this, and it, but if you feel like this is about my glory or this thing I'm going to build because I'm going to be a successful pastor or because the elders want to go on another cruise. I mean, I'm sorry. We, we didn't go on a cruise. I'm just kidding. You know, um, or if you just, if you feel, if, see, if, see, you need to go to a church where you believe that it's, it's for you. And if it's not here, and you can't get there here, you shouldn't become cynical and not give. You need to go somewhere else. And you need to go somewhere where the spirit of that place is about Jesus and about what we're doing together with and for him, how, about we're, how we're growing into that reality together, and that when we—, we uh, somebody can get up and call for amazing sacrificial generosity from you, and you can, you can say no, but still believe that, that the idea is that something for you was just propositioned. Does that make sense? Okay, we need to move on. How does real faith change hospitality? Um, you know, in some ways, hospitality doesn't seem like the big issue in relationship to generosity, because generosity is like explicitly about money in this case. But you know what? In some ways, it's bigger than generosity, because hospitality is generosity in your personal space. Right? It, there's expense to it. There's time, but it's in your personal space. You, lo- you lose more freedom, more um, autonomy, by opening yourself up fundamentally to other people. And in this passage, well, here's one, one of the things we need to recognize about the God of the Bible is the God of the Bible is, seems very interested in providing a home for people. That's, that's on his mind. Like, think about it. What, what was God, what was the first bad thing that happened in the Bible? Well, sin. Yes, sin, right. But what was the first terrible consequence of sin? The curse. Yes, the curse. What was the first thing that happened with the curse? They lost their perfect home. Right? And when God began to redeem the Israelites, what was the big promise that he offered to them? A home. A new land that was going to be their home forever, as long as they followed him. Right? Um, in, uh, in Psalm 68, 5 and 6, the, the worshipfully, um, the psalmist reflects on it like this. That God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is, the God, in his ho- is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious will live in a sun-scorched land. Do you see that idea there? That he's a, he's a father. He's a father over people who are apart, widows and orphans, and he, he brings them together, and he takes lonely people, and he puts them into a community, into a family of people together. That's, that's, he's interested in that. That's the sort of person that he is, you see? And so if you worship a God like that, if that's a God who is, and if we follow a God like that, then what kind of people would we naturally be? Not because we have to be, but out of affection. How would we imitate the one who's loved us and who is changing us, right? And in this passage, Paul makes at least three claims to hospitality, right? He claims it for himself. Hey, I'm going to show up. I'll probably be there all winter, and then you can pay for me to go to the next place, right? That's what he says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here to Pentecost. I'll come over there. And then you can't stay on the Aegean Sea during the winter. So he'll, wherever you go, you stay all winter. So he'll stay all winter with these guys. And that means I'm going to stay with you and eat your food and stuff. Sit by your fires. And then you can pay me. He, you can give me the $20,000 for me to get wherever I need to go next. Because I'm going to go do ministry after that. Right? That's pretty direct. And then he says, now Timothy is going to show up anytime. You need to do the same thing for him. If he shows up, make sure that he's taken care of him. What do they mean by that? Have nothing to fear. Meaning of want, right? Timothy's going to show up. You need to fully accept him as a person. You need to take care of his needs. And then you need to send him, meaning pay for his boat passage to get him back to Ephesus, right? And then the third one is in relation to Stephanus and um, the other Achaean leaders. He says, listen, there's some of your own people who were the first to believe in Jesus in Achaia, in southern Greece there. And you know that. And they have gone all over the place for Jesus. They've sacrificed for you. They came to Ephesus to me to bring this gift that you just gave. They're going to come back with me. They risk their, their, their lives. They, they go all over. They are sacrificing for Jesus. And you need to honor people like that. If he says, he says, these kind of people deserve recognition. And for both Timothy and Stephanus and, and the brothers there, he refers to them as doing the work of the Lord. That is, he's saying, what he's arguing is, people who have given themselves— put aside their private interests to focus dramatically on God's purposes and mission. Those who have given themselves to the work of the Lord, those people deserve your hospitality. And you must give it. 
Now, so I'm a pastor, and I help run a church. So when I talk about hospitality, who do I tend to refer to? Guests, right? I'm like, guests. Like, our job is not—this isn't Walmart. You don't greet them and give them a shopping cart, shake their hand, and send them off. It's like somebody coming over to your house. You need to, like, take their code and enter them into a conversation, make sure that they get, find where the food is, and then you introduce them to new people. And it's, it's your home. It's not a store. We, we need to care about new people. And incidentally, there's, there's 40 or 50 people here that weren't here last month. If the numbers run right that I've seen for the last few worship services. There's people here to show hospitality to, right? And we need to do that. But see, here's the thing. That's not the be-all, end-all of hospitality in the Bible, is it? This passage is actually about hospitality shown to leaders. Right? Um, and that's actually true throughout Paul's epistles. In, um, in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 19, it says, To the elders who direct the affairs of the church— the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and the worker deserves its, his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Now, when you look at the Old Testament quotations, do not muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. See the quotations? And the worker deserves his wages. That's a quotation from the Old Testament scripture saying, the Bible says this, you have to believe this. That's what Paul is saying, right? Now, what is the wage of the worker in this context? Is it his salary? Look at the immediate context. What's the wage? This is participatory. It's honor, right? That's the, that's the wage word. These people, these elders, who God has put in charge over you in terms of spiritual leadership— especially those doing preaching and teaching, they're worth double honor, and that's their wage. And see, the Bible says you're supposed to believe in that. And in addition to, that, what do you do with people that you honor? You don't entertain frivolous accusations, right? So don't entertain an accusation against an elder, right? So, I mean, think about this. Think about the dynamic of leadership in the world. And there's no better example of this than in political leadership right now. How does it work? We skin our leaders alive, Right? We subject them to the worst possible treatment. We don't respect anybody in authority. Any accusation is good enough to talk about and talk about and talk about and talk about, no matter how scant the evidence for it. And therefore, what we get is wrecked leaders, and the wrecked leaders then get a sense of entitlement from that and say, well, at least I might as well get something out of this positionality. And you get increased cronyism and corruption and all that kind of thing. And then people are terribly led, and the social fabric starts to break apart. Isn't that wonderful? You see, the kind of, of social relationship of leadership and following that Scripture talks about um, does not abide this post-establishment, this disestablishment of idea of all leaders are idiots. You know, it's like the Simpsons. Every leader's an idiot, right? You know, the only people that are smart are individuals that nobody pays attention to. That's, that's not real life. There are real leaders that can be good leaders, and if we don't abuse them constantly, they may actually step up and lead. And it says in Hebrews 13 that, listen, it should be a joy to them, right, when they lead. And so when it comes to elders and, and staff people and ministry leaders and people who have stepped up into leadership, there's a certain way that we're commanded to treat them with, hospita with hospitality. We're supposed to love them and, and treat them well. And what this is—but but this is also in reference—so so you can say it's about pastors and leaders and whatever. But the other thing this really focuses on is missionaries. Missionaries. I mean, St Stephanus is essentially a missionary. Timothy is a missionary. Paul is a missionary. These are people who, they have no home. Why is hospitality so critical to these people? They don't have a home. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have one. And so they are dependent on us. And, he, and here's, here's one of the interesting things about that is, you know, Jesus made them a promise. He made missionaries a promise. Do you remember this? When when the, the, the camel couldn't go through the eye of the needle thingy, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, we, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, I know, right? And he said, what does he say next? He says, listen, for those of you who've left everything to follow me, you will not fail to receive back a hundred times in this life, mothers, brothers, sisters, land, whatever, and with it persecution, and in the life to come, eternal life, right? So you see, Jesus made a promise on our tab. Right? That's what he did. Jesus made a promise on yours and my tab. He, he basically said, we would become a hundredfold increase of brothers and sisters to those who give up everything to do the work of the Lord. 
Isn't that what he said? He said, you and I, so if, if they had to walk away from their own father, we would be their father. And their own mother, we would be their mothers. And their own sister, we would be. And if they walked away from cars and homes and security and help, and, and, and we would be that for them, right? A hundredfold we would be that for them. And Jesus made them that promise, and then he dumped it on us. Why? So that we would learn to be hospitable and generous. And so that they would be cared for. And so in the Christian community, um, in the Christian community, missionaries are celebrities. In the Christian community, your celebrity status is directly related to your sacrificial status. Period. Think about it. In 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul boasts that he's a big deal. Because the Corinthians are like, we know people who are more talented than you, but there's better celebrities than you. He's like, he's like, I'll tell you how big a celebrity I is. What does he say? You go read it this afternoon. I'm not telling you. But I promise you, it is directly related to sacrifice. In the Christian church, celebrity status is not related to how good you look, how much money you have, how long you've been around, how good you speak, what you do, whether you're funny. No, it's directly related to how much have you sacrificed and put yourself on the line for the work of the Lord, for his glory and for the good of all people, and especially his people. And if that's true, the question is, well, how do you treat celebrities, right? How do we treat celebrities? We want to be around them. We want to know everything that's happening in their lives to kind of a crazy amount, right? We want to protect the reputation. We want them to feel supported. We just want to do things for them, right? How interested are you when a missionary shows up and what's been going on with them? They're a celebrity. You should want to know who they've dated and who they just divorced. I'm just kidding. You should want to know, you should want to know what's happening in their ministry. What's, what's going on? What's happening in Pakistan? What's happening in North Africa? What's happening in— the UAE. What's happening in those places? Is anything happening? What's happening in you? Can we support? I mean, that's what we would do if a celebrity came here. We'd want to hang around and we want to hear about what things are going on. If we don't think missionaries are celebrities, it means our value system is totally screwed up. And I will tell you this, taking that perspective class is a way to get some of that ordered up that's going to be offered. What this also means about missionaries is you and I should not support any missionary that you would not have in your house for four months. We have no business sending ridiculously weird people off to the mission field to get rid of them. No business doing that. That's not loving for anybody. It's just, and, it, and it's not good for the gospel. It's not good for them. It's not good for the church. You don't know who, God, who God's going to raise up 20 minutes later who he's legitimately called and gifted for it. And so, and I'm not saying there were weird people aren't gifted. There's a lot of weird missionaries who are incredibly gifted. The issue is call, and can we discern it? And we don't even have any business giving those missionaries go-away gifts. You know, like, oh, brother, we really believe in your ministry. We're going we're to give you $40 a month for your whole, you know, that's baloney. If we believe in somebody, we ought to support them. If we don't believe in somebody, we ought to tell them. Be why? Because we have a hospitality responsibility to them. They, they are people we should be perfectly glad to have in our house for four months. If, he, if they want to stay the winter, and then we can send them on to the next thing, we're like, we'll see you later, Paul. You know, you're, you're, the futon will be there. That's how it ought to work. And so, and, and because we're, we, are, we are to be their hundred of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and resources. And we ought to stand with them, and we need to be serious about that. Sending a missionary is like getting married. Does that make sense? All right. Now let's look at this crazy horse picture. There it is. Hospitality only works when it's driven by our affections. By our passions. Your passions were not meant to just run however the heck they wanted to because we're too broken for that. What the Bible calls the flesh, our sinful nature, it's too pervasive. And so you, you can have a horse and you can let it run loose in your house and do whatever it wants. And it's probably going to get tired and break things and be very confused. And you're not going to get much out of it. You're going to be worse for the wear. 
And your passions are like that. If you just let them do whatever they want, you're going to be you're going to be da- you're going to be downriver a long way. You're going to be much worse for the wear for the fact that you have passions. Passions are meant to be set upon things. You set your passion on things. That's what the Bible means by election, right? What does election mean? What does predestination mean? It means God setting his affection on something deliberately and choosing to set his love on it. That's what your spouse deserves. That's what your children should receive from you. Not the, the spontaneous feeling, but you set your affection and you drive your emotions towards something. And once you've cut that out, the water will naturally flow that way. But you've got to cut the channel. And that is an act of will and volition. And you've got to put a bit in the mouth of that horse. And if you do, instead of breaking your china, it will carry you through river and over ocean towards the end and the goal to which you were meant. Your passions and your affections will lead you to generosity. They will lead you to hospitality. They will lead you to the hospitable and generous one. They will lead you to the things he cares about. They will lead you to what we call the gospel, the good news. And when that happens, none of this will have to be an admonishment. We will, we will give enough that we will all be getting audited by the IRS. All of our non-Christian friends will think, will think we're stupid for driving the cars we drive. And we won't care. We will be so cheerful in giving to the things we want to accomplish together and glad for any fruit that they produce, that we will be a true oddity of the world. They will look at us, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, they will pity us, but they won't help but be able to be intrigued by us. Let's pray. Father, um, would you please help us to be the kind of people that see you as the one that is cheerfully generous in all things? Would you help us to be a church led by leaders who have given themselves to hospitality and generosity, who have given themselves to service and humility, and who keep each other accountable. And would you help us to be a people who rightly honor the people we should honor, people who honor our guests because they're foreigners to us and we're called to that, but also people who honor our leaders, our elders, and people who treat our missionaries with some of the greatest respect because we recognize that celebrity status is related directly to sacrifice in the gospel, which makes you our greatest celebrity, Jesus. You our greatest affection, the one, you the one we're most interested in. We pray that in being interested in you, you would show us what we could be if we respond to your love, your affection, your mission, your truthfulness. I pray you do this work at High Point, in this church and family people, and in your church in the whole city, and more broadly even. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen.